Today's show is sponsored by Cornbread Hemp CBD. Cornbread Hemp, Kentucky-based company, one of our favorites. They were started with a simple mission to improve the quality of life and to create a world free of cannabis prohibition. Callie, you recently got to try some of their stuff, some of the gummies, and I think it's safe to say that you're a convert, well, maybe not a convert, but a, a devotee. Oh, yes. I uh, I would say devotee. I like that one. Um, I am so excited about cornbread hemp, and I am going to tell you why. I struggle with chronic illness, and I am disabled, and cornbread hemp, their gummies, have really, really helped me to be able to um, just knock some of the edge off, and I, I really appreciate that. And I'm, I know that there are lots of folks who are chronically ill who look for stuff like this to just kind of get them get their pain one notch down and into, the, into a better place, and I feel like cornbread hemp does just that. They are full spec flower only CBD products that are USDA certified, fully organic. The gummies, like I mentioned, have uh, the most THC allowed by federal law, up to two milligrams of naturally occurring Delta 9 THC per serving. Um, and they are legal to ship to all 50 states and U.S. territories. They are family owned and operated out of Louisville, Kentucky, and they're crowdfunded, no corporate cash. We love to see that. And again, I really am very excited to be the person who gets to tell you about cornbread hemp. I think they're a great company. Um, and I think that their products are the real deal. And so um, I, I definitely want to put my stamp of approval on this. Use the code APPODLACHA at checkout, A-P-P-O-D-L-A-C-H-I-A. And we are really excited to be able to uh, offer you, what is the discount there, Chuck? 25%. 25%. That's a lot. That'll save you a lot of money on, on your orders from Cornbread Hemp. So um, check them out. They're great. And uh, we are very, very happy to be supported by them. And again, like Chuck said, if you're supporting them, you're supporting us. You bet. And in addition to gummies, which you can get in one milligram, two milligram THC, you can also get bomb. You can also get oil. You can also get cream. You can even get CBD oil for your pets. It's pretty dope. We love Cornbread Hemp. We're a big fan of them, and we think that you should check them out because we know that you'll be a big fan of them, too. And you never want to let your people down. So when you go to bed at night, put your head on that soft pillow. You know Oz will be doing exactly what you want him to do if you were there next to him. Welcome back to Applied Lecture. My name's Chuck Cor. I'm joined, as always, by the wonderful Callie Pruitt. It is as we're recording this, Sunday, May 22nd, 2022, year of our Lord, or if you're, I suppose, an atheist or agnostic or whatever, year of something. So uh, <laughs> that was that was the dumbest joke I've ever even tried. <laughs> I thought it was funny. I like, didn't want to laugh. I thought it was funny. I am, I'm not great off the cuff some days. I don't know. Some days are better than others. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to just start over we can just... no we're, we're rolling we're rolling okay. this is this is all we're all authentic on this show we've got a lot to talk about there's a lot to unpack it's been a minute since you and i have talked and we got a great it interview has. coming up later today but first for the intro you brought this up we have to talk about it it's about a a democratic politician gubernatorial hopeful in the great state of Georgia, the peach state, as some call it. Their peaches are delicious. I can't attest to that. Stacey Abrams, she said something. It was kind of interesting, maybe not the best thing to say. And you as a political operative, I think, have some very profound insight on it. So let it rip. Lord, yeah. Um, so Stacey Abrams, look, my girl, I love her. I love everything about her. I, I, my favorite thing about her actually is that she's a Star Trek fan. I'm a Star Trek fan, but hmm. 
the woman said something just plain dumb. And uh, I want to read it to you verbatim what she said. I am tired of being told that we are the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. <sighs> Woof. That is... Um, that's not what you want to hear from uh, your gubernatorial <laughs> hopeful. Um, I, I saw. I took one look at this. I sent it to Chuck. I said, we've got to talk about this. Um, you know, I feel like this is a trap that so many Democrats fall into. We want better for our people. We want better for our communities. And we know that we can do better. And I think that that's what she ultimately meant. But... It just came across real bad, so bad, in fact, that she had to send a clarifying tweet after the dinner that she uh, that she said this at, which was the the um, Gwinnett Dems dinner, which is a county um, in Georgia. She said to clarify later on. Very important county in Georgia. Um, she sent this later on. She said, Georgia may be the number one place for business, but we're 48 in mental health, number two in uninsured, number one in maternal mortality and in new HIV cases, number nine in gun violence. For too many, Kemp's Georgia doesn't include them. Why? Because hashtag Kemp doesn't care. As governor, I'll lead hashtag one Georgia, and that's number one for all of us. I like it. I like that. But the the bottom line is she should not have had to send that tweet. Uh, and yeah, I'd love your reaction on all of that, too, Chuck. Sure. Well, first of all, Gwinnett County, one of the most important Appalachian counties in the entire country when it comes to elections. It was a pivotal county in 2020, both in the Senate elections and the presidential. So got a lot of love. It's uh, Metro Atlanta. Sorry for mispronouncing it also. My bad. I don't know. I'm just winging it on that. So if we're mispronouncing it, let us know. And I will Please do. probably screw it up again at some point. I apologize. <laughs> we want to respect your home counties. We really do. We really do. We really do. So gently tell us if we're wrong. Gently. Be nice about it, though. Don't be a dick. Okay, so with Stacey Abrams, this comment, I think, let, let's not infer bad intent. Because I don't think there was necessarily bad intent. I mean, the argument of like, Oh, you live in a shithole. Let me make it less of a shithole. Not a compelling thing if you're a candidate for statewide office. What I will say is, like, I think that the point of we're number 48 mental health, we're number two in the uninsured, number one in or uh, um, number one in new HIV cases, those types of things, very valid to point out, and I think makes a compelling argument for a change in leadership. And look. You live in West Virginia. I'm from West Virginia. We are no strangers to those statistics being the the good the the good things being at the bottom, the bad things being at the top. Very familiar with that. Mm -hmm. So I understand where she's coming from, but got to find a better way of communicating it because this really undermines your argument for I love this state. I don't believe it's going in the right direction, and I think I'm the person who can put it in the right direction when you're trashing the state. You have to be able to communicate in a way where we, this is a place we love and there's reasons we love it, but there's problems with it. This is an evergreen problem for Democrats, um, I think. You know, I don't want to single her out as the only person to ever make a gaffe like this because she's not. But I do think that Democrats on the whole need to do a lot better in terms of communicating a positive message rather than telling everyone like you've made shitty decisions, you live in a shitty state. 
And why don't you let me, a smarter person than you, take over? You know, that's just not a winning message. So yeah, let's let's take this for what it is um, and let's learn from it because I think I think that Democrats as as a whole can and should do better on these issues. I agree. And we, we I think there's and I'm not saying that this is how she's coming off. I'm saying Democrats sometimes come off as lecturing and people I don't care if you're right. You can be right on everything, but the way and you ask anybody from from, you know, professors to comedians and actually, comedians is a great example because the way you say something really matters. It's how you say it. It's not necessarily what you say. It's how you say it sometimes. This, it's a little bit of both. But I think that Democrats in general can sometimes come off as lecturing. And let me tell you something. Even if you're right, nobody wants to be lectured to, especially if you're trying to court their vote. And that's something that I think is hard to get across, especially to the Twitter crowd of the, well, but I'm right. And that's all well and good. But, well, those people aren't necessarily going to vote for you because of that. So... Um, that's where I fall on that. And, uh, you know, I think that this will probably be something that they'll try to run against her. Maybe it'll be successful. Maybe it won't. I think she's got plenty to run against Governor Kemp on. We'll see what happens. Uh, and we'll, we'll check back in with her. Maybe at a campaign check in it sometime. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Yep. But speaking of campaign check in, boy, we've got, we got a lot to unpack. And I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like, you know, I kind of regret publishing on a Tuesday because every time there's an election, it's on a Tuesday. So we have to wait a week to talk about what happened. So I don't know, maybe someday we'll, we'll move these episodes up so that we can do it sooner. But if you're listening to this, there's a good chance. Maybe, maybe you have, maybe you haven't listened to other shows talk about this. Regardless, we're going to talk about some of the midterm primary results and uh, you're going to hear some new fresh perspective from us. So even if you've listened to all those other podcasts, you're still getting new stuff. So don't turn that dial to use an antiquated radio term. <laughs> so I'm I'm excited to talk about Pennsylvania uh, because I am so excited to hear you talk about Pennsylvania. I'm ready. I you know, it's really funny. We put out last week a bunch of tweets about Fetterman. And I actually got a question from somebody saying, like, are you the Fetterman stan of the two of you? And I was <laughs> like, I mean, I I am, but no, not anywhere close to where Chuck is. And so I'm very excited to hear you just like completely um, fangirl over Fetterman. I, I will fangirl pretty hard, all right? And look, you know, this guy, not perfect. Nobody is. Look, okay, so let's get let's get into it. The Democratic uh, Senate primary in the great state of Pennsylvania, the Keystone State, the Democratic Senate primary. Let me just tell you something, all right? And I, I'm sure that this has been used before, but I'm going to say it. Fetterman took the lamb out to slaughter. That's right. Connor Lamb got his ass whooped. Connor Lamb, a centrist slash conservative <laughs> Democrat from Western Pennsylvania, ran against John Fetterman, the current lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, got destroyed. Fetterman won all 67 counties with almost 60% of the vote. Let's just talk real quick about this because I think John Fetterman ran in a great campaign. I think he has a real shot at winning the general, even in a bad year. And I think there's a lot about him that's important and look i am a little biased because he was the first major person that we had on this podcast and i i am grateful for him for coming on and hope we can get him back on i think one of these things and look i'm not trying to objectify people i'm not trying to say that appearance is everything but appearance does matter in elections i think a little bit john fetterman has got the appearance he looks like a mac truck he's a big dude he's like six foot seven 
built like a brick shit house, bald, goatee, tattoos, wears dicky shorts and Carhartt hoodies like 95% of the time. He's like he's like the human manifestation of a metallurgical blast furnace that smelts <laughs> weaker opponents and politicians. I love this guy. I remind me I tweeted this the other day it reminded me about the guy a guy that was at my dad's union hall. I used to go to those union meetings with him growing up and he would be the guy that would sit in the back and and kind of snarl every time the union had to make uh, concessions to the company when they were negotiating contracts but then he'd also be the guy that would bring donuts that's john fetterman <laughs> i love that I, I love that so much because it, it really he's kind of a teddy bear yeah yeah i can definitely see that. you know the guy he's he's tough but fair and he's very tough with us i mean very tough very blunt guy but we appreciated that. But anyway, I, you know, I go back to the appearance because this guy, he looks like Pennsylvania. That's I heard somebody say that, and I like that. He looks like Pennsylvania. I like that appearance in somebody. Looks like a blue-collar guy, wears shorts everywhere. Big fan of him. Just... Yeah, I think that he is um, one of the most effective Democrats in coming across as uh, a man of the people. So I think that there are there are a lot of people who need to take a few notes from him. That's true. And here's the other thing that I liked about his campaign. His whole thing is every county, every vote. And I think too often Democrats have neglected rural counties. And this is something that when we had him on our show, um, gosh, it was about a year and a half ago, he was talking about his statewide tour um, on marijuana and, and kind of taking the temperature of people and, and understanding like where the support was. And it was all over the state. And, and that was, he was very committed to that idea. And so I really liked that about him because it wasn't somebody who was ignoring the places that have already been ignored by Democrats. He was going to every single County and, and searching for every single vote. And I think that that's an important strategy to implement and take forward with him. And, uh, and I think that he can be extremely competitive. And one thing I wanted to point out before we get to the, the, the Republican, primary is that he won every single county like i said very decisive victory he's consolidated the democratic electorate behind him which is really important going into an election that there's a tough year for democrats and for those of you who may not be aware the senate seat that he's running for in pennsylvania is an open seat because the uh senator that's retiring pat toomey is a republican he's retiring so it's an open race uh, kind of a jump ball at this point and uh, he has, a, I think, a really good shot of winning if he doesn't screw it up. <laughs> um, so we'll see what happens. He's got a couple weaknesses, I think. I think they're going to hit him on crime because he sits mm -hmm. on the parole board and has granted uh, parole, I believe, for a lot of people who have been locked up, which I think is a good thing. I really do. I believe in that. I do, too. But I think that Republicans are going to try to hit him on crime, especially because crime polls really high right now. Um, and he's also got this incident where he pulled a gun on an unarmed black man. Um, you all can look that up to get the full context of that. I, my read of it is that it was a mistake in a one-off situation. The guy has since endorsed him. So I, that's not something that really, I think concerns me about him. I don't get the sense that he's, he, he has like a predilection against black people, which I think was what was implied there. Um, I'm happy to be pushed back on that, but that was not my take of it. So um, I think he's a really strong candidate and a really good one. And it's worth pointing out, he's very progressive on, on a mm -hmm. lot of issues. He's very pro-weed. He's very pro-choice, uh, pro pro-women's bodies. Um, 
and I think that he he's very pro union. He's a he's an economic populist, which is really I think a what more Democrats should be focusing on because that's how you win. I think he's a really interesting person, and I think that he. Um, Oh, his his campaign is really going to depend on the outcome of the GOP side of this race. And I really I, I, I want to move there um, because right now the GOP side of the Senate race in in uh, Pennsylvania is still too close to call a week later. Less than a thousand votes separate the two candidates. Wow, that is so, so few votes in a state like Pennsylvania. That's like less than a thousandth of the electorate it's crazy yeah and the candidates so this race is interesting i to be honest i wasn't really following it super closely before this all happened obviously a lot of us heard that dr oz jumped in the race who was i think probably still is a new jersey resident but i think he was using his his in-laws address or something <laughs> to register i it's very strange so he's technically in the lead with 31.2 percent of the vote Dave McCormick, who I genuinely do not know much about him, is right behind him. Less than a th- I think it's less than a thousand votes behind at this point. Maybe a little more than a thousand. Kathy Barnett, who is a nut job election truther, I believe. Who? Oh my gosh, she is just. A, I don't even know. I can't even describe all the the crazy that's wrapped up in her. She's like behind, but close. Yeah, she's like she's like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but Pennsylvania. That's perfect. That is and that is exactly what you need to know about this person. I don't think she's going to pull this <laughs> one out. She's too far behind the leaders. But uh, but this is and that's important because this electorate was extremely divided. You have Oz, who. If you take him at his word, he is more moderate than Kathy Barnett. And I think Dave McCormick. He's not by any means moderate, but he's not a full-blown election truther, so to speak. Right. And and by that, I mean somebody who believes that, that, that the 2020 election results were fraudulent and should be overturned. You know, I honestly don't know how he has managed that, uh, that position for so long because he has the endorsement of Trump, which, you know, he had to go to uh, Mar-a-Lago and, and like pitch himself. So I'm not sure how he's been walking that line, um, but I mean, I guess kudos to him for doing it. But I really think that whoever wins this GOP side is going to just really impact Fetterman's race, because I think that if Dr. Oz wins, then it's going to be a lot harder um, not that either option is going to be easy, but I think that an Oz-like person with very high name ID, with a Trump endorsement, um, that's going to be really tough. It's going to be a really, really tough race. And so I think a McKinley would be kind of the more pre- preferred option um, because he is more unknown. Um, he is kind of like he comes across as a little bit like stuffy, I think, when I've seen him speak. Um, and I think in a debate with the two of them i think fetterman could put him in a trash can and kick him down the road but that's just my opinion i could actually see him literally doing that too which would be interesting to watch yeah i I guess i'm i'm with you for the most part i think that oz is a weaker i think he has bigger weaknesses but i also like this you can't underestimate the strength of name id and yeah and look like a lot of people a lot of people watch daytime tv who vote and a lot of people know him as this good doctor who went on Oprah and and that's a lot of what they know about him. 
And so I think like Fetterman could easily hit him on the residency things, you know, questioning like his Pennsylvania credentials. He also voted in the Turkish presidential election, which was bizarre. Uh, I guess because is he? A, I don't know if he's a dual citizen or what. I'm not really sure what's going on there. But I think you can hit him on that. And I, honestly, and this kind of leads into the other election is I think that because of how the governor's primary in Pennsylvania went, you can put him put Doctor Oz in a box. Which speaking of, let's talk about the gubernatorial primaries because those are important and they I think relate directly to this. There wasn't a lot of excitement on the Democratic side because there was only one guy running, Josh Shapiro. He was the, the attorney general, current attorney general. But the Republican side, and I want you all to listen because if you take away anything from this, this is the most important thing. And especially if you live in Pennsylvania, this is a disaster. And it could be, I'm not exaggerating when I say that this man who got nominated by the Republicans could destroy American democracy. That is not an exaggeration. (laughs) This guy. Yeah, it's not. It's, and so this guy, Doug Mastriano. Callie, you want to, you want to tick through some of the things that this guy is for and against? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think let's just, let's hit the, hit the highlights. Um, So he's a a current member of the Pennsylvania State Senate. um, And he was one of those state senators that we heard about who was actually at the January 6th insurrection. Um, he didn't go into the Capitol, but he did pass through the, the breached barriers, um, trespassing onto federal land. Um, I just want to point out that this is totally like the Republican talking point now of, I was at the rally, but I didn't go into the Capitol. That's their yeah. way of squaring that circle. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, as if that's any better. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... So there, there's that January sixth, that little that little thing. Um, he's also a, a QAnon conspiracy theorist, um, hardcore. It seems like very, still very invested in QAnon. Which, like, come on, guys, uh, isn't it done? Let it go. Like, isn't isn't Q gone? I I would think so, but I just saw a prediction about. Um, an overthrow of President Biden a couple of weeks ago that was predicted by QAnon. It's just, of course, truly baffling to me. Um, also, just like generally, like the guy opposes legalizing weed, and that's like a big thing for him. So it it seems like just not the kind of guy that even a lot of Republicans are excited about, I think. Because legalizing weed is very popular in Pennsylvania. So popular. It's so popular, and it should be. He also called for a uh, mask-burning party and urged people to reject store employees, telling them to wear a mask and uh, lie to them saying that you're exempt. Yeah. Like, what? Wow. Just dumb. Just dumb political capital that he used to do that. Then also he has shared a bunch of, of, of posts on his Facebook saying that Islam wants to kill gay rights, Judaism and Christianity, which like <laughs> doesn't doesn't he also want to kill gay rights? <laughs> like That's the what I'm confused. About. I'm like, OK, is this guy pro gay rights? I'm really not sure at this point. Honestly, there are so many Republicans who use that talking point when they want something and then are the total opposite. Like there there is no friend of you. If you're gay, 
if you're queer, there's no friend in the Republican Party. I think we all know this, but but there isn't. Um, he also, not, at least not in the elected part, anyway. Yeah, and um, he will get to. This is like a real kicker. Um, I think this is the most important part that that really is going to destroy America. If if uh, he gets elected, he'll get to appoint a Secretary of State and will appoint one that will throw out existing voter registrations. All of them will likely make everyone re-register to vote. What the living fuck? That's like six, it's over six million people, six million registered voters. That, okay, and that's an important part of this. Like, the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania is not elected, not like Georgia and, and West Virginia and several other states. They're appointed. So if this guy, who is an election truther, one of the biggest there is, gets elected he will have a secretary of state that will do his bidding and make everybody in the state re-register, which that's just one thing that he will make them do. Not to mention probably question, not even probably scratch that, definitely question the results of the 2024 election whenever that happens. if If a Democrat were to win the state. This is scary shit. This guy was one of the leaders in the Pennsylvania Senate, uh, leading the charge to have the legislature appoint delegates to the Electoral College instead of following the results of the presidential election. He wanted to appoint electors that would that would that would reject the results. Just seems like a real wholesome thing to do. Real stand-up guy. Real stand-up guy. How do you so I want your take on this cuz I've got some opinions. How do you think this person won this election and won it so decisively cuz like it wasn't quite like a Fetterman situation, but it was a pretty wide margin. I'm looking right now. Um, I just want to see if he got endorsed by Trump because I can't remember right now. He did. He did. Okay. Yes. So- and it was funny because Lou Barletta was like a big OG Trumper and he was running against this guy and Trump was like, nah, man, I'm going to go with this dude. Yeah. So I think... That in many ways, the Republican primaries across the country are are just tiny little referendums on Trump. His endorsement, uh, he's been throwing it everywhere, everywhere that he can. He's been throwing it. He's been having private meetings at Mar-a-Lago with um, with folks who are literally bringing pitch decks um, and his staff are um telling folks how to present information to Trump. So they've said lots of pictures, not a lot of text, only like four words per slide. And you just praise Trump as much as you can. And that's happening. That is, that's been reported on by folks at the New York Times, even like lots of people understand that Trump is holding court right now to pick out the next generation of GOP leaders, and they are all going to be subservient to him. Um, And so I think that in many ways, having a Trump endorsement was what put so many people over the finish line. Oh, yeah. Well, definitely for J.D. Vance. Absolutely. Yeah. No Uh, question. Yeah, you're right. And I think like, I don't want to say that Trump's influence is waning. I don't know that he has quite the influence that some people suggest, but he still has a huge amount of influence. And, uh, and and it's something that can't be ignored. And with this, he's endorsing people a lot of times that want to, to throw out the election results and would have had they been in power in 2020. That's why this guy is so scary. And I think that he has crafted this Mastriano guy. I don't know a lot about him. He's crafted a persona that's very appealing to, to people. He is a veteran who 
if you go on his Twitter, he's posting every day about a fallen veteran in the state of Pennsylvania. And when people see stuff like that, that hits for them. So like this, like do not underestimate this person. And when you go, go out and vote because in vote for, for the Democrat in this race, even if you don't really like the Democrat, this is the difference between a democracy and not. And uh, I don't know about you all, but I kind of like at least having a democracy, even if it's if it's you know terribly functioning at times, it's better than having a complete nightmare hellscape literally in front of your door. Yeah, yeah. I think that if there's nothing else that gets you out to vote, it should be protecting democracy because I understand the anger that a lot of folks have for Democrats, for Republicans, for party politics, for the same old, same old shit. Um, and I really understand that and I deeply empathize with that. Um, but there's some things that we just have to do. We just have to get up and we have to do them, um, for the sake of the country. And I think that particularly in Pennsylvania, this is not only a chief battleground state and a place where we are going to see the next decade of politics playing out in Pennsylvania, um, but it's in addition to being that it, it's also a, a place that is in desperate need of good people in power. And I think that casting your vote against this person, even if it's not for another person, is worth your time and is worth your effort. I completely agree. And I know that like that's a lot of times it is this whole lesser of the two evils thing. And I hate. You know, I hate that framing. I really do. But that's the reality of the situation we're living in. And with this, it's like, this is not just a policy disagreement. This is someone who disagrees with people's rights to vote, which is why he wants to get rid of it and make you re-register. Yeah. I also just want to point out, it's really funny to me um, how much Republicans have knocked uh, the Pennsylvania Elections Board and the Secretary of State and all of that. And now they're reliant on a recount for the results yeah. of their election. Yeah. It's just too good to be true. Yeah, it's really uh, it's really pathetic. Um well, we're going to be talking a lot more about Pennsylvania in the coming weeks. Uh, hopefully we can get some people from Pennsylvania on to talk about it, too. Uh, John Fetterman, invite always open. Um, but let's briefly talk about North Carolina. And, and I guess we can talk about Kentucky. There's so much to talk about with Kentucky. And congrats to Charles Booker, former guest of the show, friend of ours, who won his primary and will be going on to face Rand Paul. Your home state of North Carolina, definite, always a battleground, and... Always. I'm not going to say that our episode that came out on last Tuesday, the day of the North Carolina primary, had a role in Madison Cawthorn losing, but I'm definitely not not going to say that either. I am so proud of the North Carolina 11th District. Thank you. God, the Madison Cawthorn is not going to represent us anymore. You know, I don't think he's going to go away. He's already kind of said that he's not going to go away, come out, started talking about whatever his next project is. But the man should not have been in elected office. And, um, you know, I have to hand it to uh, 
the Republicans who rallied against him and knew, understood the danger that he posed. You know, look, I don't like Chuck Edwards. We're going to talk about Chuck Edwards. We're going to uh, criticize Chuck Edwards because he's got a lot to criticize. Um, Won't criticize his name, though. Great name. Yes. Yes. Chuck, great name. Um, but, but uh, I don't think that if there's another situation where there's a natural disaster or where there are people dying that he will, I don't think that his lines will be closed. I think he will be there for the people. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's the bare minimum that you can expect from your representatives. Um, and I, I plan very much on criticizing him in the coming uh, months, but I'm just so pleased that, uh, that are, that uh, Madison is is out of here. Yes, celebrate uh, all wins, big and small. And that was, I think, a big win in some ways, a small win, but also a big win. And uh, we'll see what happens in that district. It's a wild place, but I am proud of the people for for voting him out. Good job, good job, folks. Yep. We've also got some other exciting news before we before we move on to our announcements. Um, you know, I, w- I wish we could talk about this for another hour, but uh, Sherry Beasley um, is is going to be the nominee for Senate. Um, really exciting uh, to have her. She is the uh, the former Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. Yeah. Super impressive person. Um, super impressive campaign. Um, being actually run by somebody who used to work at the D trip, uh, who I actually, I think he's running a great campaign. Um, and so I, I, I am very excited for the future of what's going on, uh, in North Carolina politics. I think that we're going to have a lot of interesting races, a lot to talk about, and, um, really proud of, of the state right now for, for doing those two things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also, uh, she was a graduate of the university of Tennessee law school, go Vols. And um, so there you go, a uh, little bit of Appalachia in there for you. I I uh, I'm interested in her background, being a justice. She was associate justice and a chief justice on the Supreme Court of North Carolina. I think it's a very interesting background for somebody to run with, and one that I, I think will get a lot of attention. I'm excited to learn more about her. Hopefully, we can have her on the show, and uh, and and get to know her a little bit better. Um, so I'm excited to watch that race. It could be interesting. It's gonna be a tough year for Democrats. It's gonna be a tough race, uh, for her. Because she's going up against kind of just a run-of-the-mill right-wing Republican, Ted Budd. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, But Budd is a brand, I will say. I mean, we can talk about this more later, but Ted Budd has a solid brand, and I think he's going to be tough to beat. Yes, he he's going to be a tough one. And I'm excited for your insight on that down the road as well. So very interested to cover that. But, I, I you know, who knows with this year? Who knows what's going to happen? Um. Well, let's uh, let's let's roll into the announcements before we talk about our 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 interview. As you know, Patreon that's that's kind of how we fund a lot of things here at the show, and there's not a ton of overhead costs, but there is some, and we always want to be making upgrades and doing better stuff. We're working on a rebranding right now, which is really exciting. Uh, Patreon.com/slash/appodlatch. You can find it in the show notes. If you want to help support us, you can by making a monthly donation. You also get access to tons of exclusive and live events, like the one that we had this past Friday, which was fucking awesome it was so, so great it was so cool right yeah it was your first one what'd you think 
I loved it. Oh my gosh. I Not only was it so great to be able to meet some of the more active members of our community, but it was also great to hear how they're receiving the show and hear their feedback on um, you know, the direction that we're headed. And I loved that. It was um, super fun. I got to know folks. Um, and yeah, I, I want to do it again many, many more times. Same. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We had good. We had a good turnout too. We had a lot of people who are regulars, which was awesome. And we had a lot of new people. And we had a lot of animals. I'll say we had a possum. We had some dogs. We had some cats. We had some bunnies. It was pretty dope. So it was. y'all should check it out. <laughs> um, but we have some new Patreon members. And going with the theme that you established last week, you wrote all of them limericks. I am very excited for you to read them. I am so excited. All right. Well, welcome first to Mary, Way, and Braxton. Um, thank you, three, for becoming patrons of the show. It means so much to us. Um, and we'll kick it off with uh, a limerick for Mary. Three cheers for our new patron, Mary. Around here, she is quite legendary. With her support, we'll grow, reaching listeners to and fro, but we'll never forget our luminary. Damn, that was good. You, Man, if, if podcasting doesn't work out for you, I mean, you've got another <laughs> career here in poetry. In limerick writing. Hey. Very lucrative. It's huge, it's um, huge industry, untapped. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Um, all right, so next is Wei. And uh, I want to just say, I, I know Wei. Wei is a friend of mine, um, and she is uh, an astrophysicist. So that's uh, that's kind of uh, a plays into the, into the limerick theme. So background on that Already one. smarter than me. <laughs> there is no one on Earth like dear Wei. Taylor Swift, X-Files in outer space. She's a brain for the ages. She fights for higher wages. And I love her more than words can say. Unreal here. Unreal. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And finally, Braxton. Um, I I left this one for the last one because I I think it's the funniest one, actually. Um, There aren't that many words that rhyme with Braxton. But we'll give it our best shot and then we'll ask him. If we did a good job, I'm sure he won't be a snob, and at least we'll know he'll never be Ken Paxton. Which, for if folks who don't know who Ken Paxton is, um, he is the lieutenant governor of Texas, and he's terrible. So we know that Braxton will never be Ken Paxton. That, for not having many words around with Braxton, that was incredible. <laughs> Thank you. It, folks, if this is not the, enough of a value add to joining, I do not know what is. And so you can take these, you can frame them, get a get a cross stitch and make it into a, a an ornament for your Christmas tree. So there you go. I love it. That was so good. That was so good. Well, check us out if you don't. Patreon.com slash Latcha. And uh, you'll get a limerick. You'll get exclusives. You'll get invites to live events. What more could you want in your life if you're listening? So there you go. All right, so let's get into our interview. Callie, you you did this one. I was unfortunately unable to make this interview. Would you care to share a little bit about this person before we jump into it? Yes, I am so excited about this interview. Um, we had joining us uh, Dr. Angie Lavara. She is a sociology professor at Frostburg State University um, in, in Western Maryland. And 
she did such a kick-ass job. So she she is um, kind of has her hands in a lot of different a lot of different things uh, as far as Appalachia goes. But I first kind of heard her speak about being fat in Appalachia about a year ago, and then she did a panel on it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. She did a panel on it at uh, the Appalachian Studies Association conference this year, and. I have never heard someone speak so plainly about being fat in Appalachia and what that means for not only their lives, but how we have been a marginalized community um, for so long and how fatness is tied up in the image of Appalachia. And so I wanted to bring her on the show because I think she's brilliant. And uh, I really, really hope that you enjoy the interview. I know that we're going to definitely have her back when she when she gets her book published. Um, but I am, I'm just so thrilled that we were able to get her on this week. Same. I, I was really excited to have her, even though I couldn't have been there. But um, so, and I'm excited for y'all to listen to it. So, why don't we get right to it? Folks, I have a very exciting guest today, um, and I'm I'm so excited to bring her to the show. Before I introduce her, I have to say that this this woman is in my brain trust. I have a standing call with her. Um, she is one of I think the most brilliant minds in Appalachia right now, and I'm more more than excited um, to have her on the pod today. Joining Chuck and I uh, is Dr. Angie Lavara. She is an assistant professor of Sociology and Women's Studies at Frostburg State University in Western Mountain, Maryland. She earned her PhD in Sociology with a concentration in Critical Race Theory. We love to see it from Georgia State University in 2016. She is a carceral abolitionist and the roots of her abolitionist practice, uh, praxis sorry, are planted firmly in her hometown of Kaiser, West Virginia, West Virginia native. Here she learned to prioritize community care from her mom and her grandma and other women who were part of the village that raised her, and she learned methods for pushing institutions to be more inclusive from her father. She is currently uh, has a she has a book under contract with the University Press of Kentucky on Appalachian contributions to a carceral abolitionist movement, which you can expect to see in print uh, in about two to three years. And we will definitely have her back to talk about that book. Um, she loves the color pink. Uh, and if you don't follow her on Instagram, you should because she uh, tricks her students sometimes uh, with uh, on Wednesdays. We wear pink and waits for them to figure it out. It's amazing. She hates pickles, which I can't get behind. Uh, I love pickles. Um, and she feels most at home in the mountains. Um, and I love that she included those, those last couple of little, uh, personal facts because you know what? She refuses to present only a portion of herself in her work. What she is here today to talk about folks is fatness in Appalachia. Oh yeah. She's a fat bitch and we love to see it. Welcome Dr. Ange. We are so happy to have you today. Um, I, I'm really excited to talk about this subject. Um, we, we're talking about fatness in Appalachia. Um, you know, one of the things that we like to do on this show is elevate voices um, that 
are marginalized. And I think that one of um, the most marginalized voices, uh, subset of voices in Appalachia are those of fat, uh, fat people and fat women in particular. Um, and uh, some folks may be wondering why I am using the word fat so abrasively. Um, Angie, can you talk about a little bit of your lived experience um, in Appalachia, your childhood, and, and uh, just tell us why we're talking about fatness, plain and simple? So first, yeah, about the language. Um, I use fat the same way that people use like tall, blue eyes, you know, any other descriptors that we talk about. Um, it's my way, and I'm not the only one who does this, is of kind of trying to destigmatize that word, but it is to some seems abrasive. Um, so I'm glad that you brought that up just to give people the disclaimer. Um, I think the best thing to do is always use the word that the per like the person in your life uses when you're talking to a person. Um, and for me, that I, I'm like totally fine calling myself fat. Um, so, but you know check with your fellow fat folks, everyone might not feel the same way. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I've been fat my whole life pretty much um, here in West Virginia for a big chunk of it. I did leave um, for a while to go to college and more school and then more school um, and just came back about a year ago, um, but was always visiting here, of course, because my parents have lived here for their entire lives in Appalachia. Um, so I, when I was really young, you know, and I think the way that you said this, you know, that we are really marginalized, um, I think that especially shows up in, in how people are talking about Appalachia. We see a lot of folks talking about uh, Appalachians and our lived experiences and y'all in this podcast are like one huge piece of, I think, why that's been happening. Um, and I still rarely see or hear people talking about the experiences of fat folks here. Um, and to me, it's interesting because we hear so many people talking about like how they were taught to minimize their accent because people hear um, a Southern or an Appalachian accent and immediately think, oh, you're not intelligent, right? Um, oh, you're backwards. Oh, you're one of those hillbillies or a redneck or whatever. Um, and those things, like the 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 roots of that, right? The roots of of portraying Appalachians as unintelligent. Those same roots um, also portrayed us as being lazy and fat, and all of those things, you know, were wrapped up together. Like when they were trying to construct us as unintelligent, they were trying to construct us as also um lazy and make our bodies be deviant too so but i'm getting ahead of myself a little bit so let me talk about my lived experience first um so i was young here um and i think around the same time that i started to have those experiences of my parents trying to teach me how to minimize my accent um and teach me I have vivid memories of them trying very very hard to get me to stop saying ain't all the time <laughs> still such a great Classic. word won't let it go. Um, they tried their hardest. Um, they also like around the same time that they were doing that is when my mom first put me on an involuntary diet. Um, of course, she didn't say like, I'm going to put you on a diet now or anything like that. It was just like, suddenly my lunchbox didn't have like good snacks in it. It had snack wells in it, which if you were like a 90s kid, I feel like you experienced the snack wells thing 
And no matter how many times they tried to say like, these are great and they taste great and they're low calorie or whatever, those things sucked. <laughs> like that was not good food. Um, <laughs> so anyway, you know, snack wheels just started showing up in my lunchbox. So my portions were smaller at dinner and like different stuff like that. Um, and when I say that, sometimes people look at me like, oh my God, I can't believe your mom did that to you. But I want to be really clear that I think the same way that our parents teach us to minimize our accents, like they're trying to do what they think is best for us to survive because they have a clear understanding of how people with our accents are treated in this world. And the same goes for fatness. Like my parents have a clear understanding that fat phobia exists in this society and they wanted to set me and my brother up for success in the best ways that they knew how at that time. And that was trying to teach us to like, quote, discipline our bodies um, into thinness, which it doesn't work. Um, yeah. <laughs> research yeah. shows it doesn't work, but I don't think that my mom knew any of that at the time, right? Um, but yeah, so, so for me, like, it's interesting that we don't talk about these things together because they're so intertwined. Like the roots of, um, or the reasons that my mom put me on a diet when I was in like, it was around fourth grade so when my thighs came in. <laughs> um, and the reasons that are the same as the reasons why my parents were trying to tell me not to say ain't so much and to stop dropping the G's off the end of my words and all those kinds of things. Does that answer your question? Kind of? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, um, I really appreciate you sharing that and, and sharing your lived experience. I'm sure that other folks in the region have experienced that as well. So um, I would love to know what that meant for you and um, kind of the implications of someone else putting their expectations on you. Um, how did that impact your, your view, not only of yourself, but um, more broadly as you grew up? How did um, those actions influence the way that you thought? Yeah, I am an overachiever. <laughs> um, and... I'm cured from this now, but for a really long time, especially when I was young, also a people pleaser. And I'm really intuitive. Like, um, I think a lot of folks that grew up in Appalachian homes can relate to this part. We don't um, necessarily like talk all about our emotions. Like my parents show their love through actions and things like that. Um, and they, they don't talk a lot about kind of why they're doing the things that they're doing and the care that's behind them and stuff like that. So for me, what that translated into, I, I became like a really intuitive kid and I could kind of like almost read their minds and anticipate what they wanted. Um, so I went over the top with it. I was like, cool. Okay. So, um, you know, in order to be like seen as good, I need to talk this way, act this way and do these things. And so it was not only, you know, losing some of my accent, which now that I'm back home, I'm like, please come back. Um, <laughs> But uh, it was also, you know, when I started to be kind of in control of what I ate more, like as you grow up, I really went over the top with um, with dieting, um, which I would now say is like disordered eating, like 100% for decades of my life, um, because I thought that's what like good folks do when you want people to see you as like you know, not one of those rednecks, not one of those hillbillies. Like I'm not one of them. Like I'm a good person. Right. Um, it was intertwined in my mind that I have to talk this way. I have to be like, so super dedicated to school and go to school for 100 million years. <laughs> and I have to will my body to be small 
which again, like it doesn't work. Like the research shows that it's the quote best estimate is like 95% of diets fail, but it's likely way higher than that. Like 99% of diets fail. And it's not because like, you know, usually sometimes people try to spin that statistic and it's like, well, 95% of dieters like go off their diet or whatever. And that's not it. It's because dieting is literal starvation Mm -hmm. (laughs) and our bodies love us and don't want us to starve. So they kind of take over. Um, and they, you know, do things like slow your metabolism down or literally, I mean, when people go off their diets, a lot of times it's like their body taking over and be like, literally eat everything in sight. Yeah. And we see that as binging, but it's literally our bodies saving us from starvation. Um, so yeah, but we, I, you know, I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> so, um, I just was in it, right? And and like also majorly over-exercising and um, doing a lot of things that I'm very glad now I don't do. Um, but for a really, really long time. I mean, decades. Um, yeah, awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate you sharing that um, with us. I think that so many people will, will resonate with that. Um, I kind of want to get into the history of fatness now um, and kind of the sociological side of that and where this um, where this story of fatness comes from. Um, and I know that you've done a ton of research on this. And so I, I'd love for wherever you'd like to start in the story. I know that this goes back hundreds of years. Um, I would love to just hear uh, about um, the history of fatness and, and how that's brought us to today going too far be like stop explain this <laughs> okay no problem we'll do it first first thing to understand is that race is not something that's biological race is something that humans made up um in sociology we call that a social construction as you know um and so social constructions like one of the ways that you can see that they are like prove that they exist is um you can see that they change over time And so an example of that with race is like, if you pull the census every 10 years that we've done it since 1790, the racial category options have changed since 1790. So we've been constantly, yeah. So we've been making and remaking race. Um, And so with that in mind, we had to make whiteness. We had to make blackness. We had to make indigeneity. We had to make you know, all of the races that we think about now, there's been this hundreds of years kind of process of constructing them. And fatness and really fat phobia or like anti-fatness is is woven into there very deeply. Um, So in the early days of really, this kind of started with slavery um, and colonization. And in the US, how it worked is, it's also wrapped up with capitalism. So we had to, you know, we're bringing a bunch of people here. We are trying to colonize this land. We, um, England and other countries, trying to colonize this space, trying to uh, also spread capitalism around the globe, right? One of the things that they had to do was kind of, it's almost like tricking people to buy into it. Um, because you can't have oppressive systems last very long if people are aware that they're oppressive (laughs) because nobody wants to be oppressed. 
Um, and capitalism, and so I don't know how many folks are going to necessarily agree with this, but it is an oppressive system. Like a very small amount of people um, are not oppressed in capitalism, and they're the ones who own major corporations. Everyone mm-hmm. else is having their labor exploited. Yeah. Nobody really wants to work like eight plus hours a day, five days a week, plus commuting, plus all of the other things. Plus, I think at this point, most of us are working way more than eight hours. Um, yeah. Nobody wants to make a wage that is not a living wage, which most of us make right now, (laughs) especially with inflation the way that it is. Um, So you have to embed these ideas in the culture of a place in order to get people to buy into them, okay? And one way that they did that was um, with one, tying it to religion, right? So uh, this is very rooted in Protestantism, this idea that like idle hands are the devil's playground kind of a thing that you should always right. be, working. you should always be doing something. Okay. Good people do things all day long. Good people don't sit around. Good people aren't lazy. Right. Yeah. And then of course, because we're trying to both create race and create a racial hierarchy, like we didn't create race and then attach a hierarchy to it later. We ha- we created race to institute white supremacy, right? Right. So we're trying to create this racial hierarchy. So we also attach those things to whiteness. Good white folks do work all day long, right? White folks do work all day long. White folks are good because they do work all day long, right? And then you have to have like a um, a counter narrative to that. So. Blackness then became um, everything that whiteness is not. Um, I can't remember his first name, but his last name is Nakagawa. He has this great piece that's literally in a blog post that talks about how blackness is the fulcrum of white supremacy. And that is the absolute best way to think about it. Um, I think Scott Nakagawa. Um, So blackness then becomes, well, black people become lazy. Black people become um, unintelligent. Black people become all of the things that white people are not supposed to be, right? And so we then start to attach uh, bodies, or we start to bring bodies into this, right? So um, thin people are people who are working all of the time. Lazy people yeah. are fat people, right? So good people are thin people because they're working all the time. Good people are white people because they're working all the time. Bad people are lazy, unintelligent, fat black people. Mm-hmm. Right. Sabrina Strings has done a lot of work on this. She has an amazing book called Fearing the Black Body that that really digs into um, how fat phobia is so connected with anti-blackness. Um, and you know, that what I just kind of said is is essentially her findings, right? Like summarized. Then we got to get into, okay, so like, how does this fit with Appalachia? No, this is, this is incredible. Um, I I think this context is so helpful um, for understanding why it has been wrapped up in um, being the other. You know, I think that that's where we get to Appalachia is, is, is in othering people. And so, um, yeah, I, I, let's let's bring it to to locally, and I, I'd love to hear your what what you have to say about how that has influenced how people view fat people in Appalachia. When we're constructing whiteness as good, um, 
we and and again we're doing this to get people to buy into capitalism right um and to really like sign up to have their labor exploited right if if that means that you're good if overworking means that you're good and then it doesn't matter your pay because like your reward is in heaven right mm -hmm. the idea um personally i don't think god wants that for me at all <laughs> no no you know, god wants me to have a life of leisure <laughs> that is my belief um, i love that <laughs> that's a god i can go behind right so but you know they had to bastardize things you know for the sake of capitalism so sure. um as you know as they do uh so we still have like all of these white folks who are here like fuck this this sucks <laughs> right i don't want to have my labor exploited and there's a constant you know several hundred years long history of resistance of all races um to capitalism and so but for for like poor white folks doing this it, it matters because you how are you going to claim white supremacy when you still have poor white folks who are out here doing all these things that they say are bad and wrong like taking naps um so what happened was they started to and this dates back to like even before the colonization of the u.s it, it's you know in england they had these kind of ideas about white trash but they didn't call it the same thing they called them like rubbish people so it's obviously still a trash uh mm -hmm. reference just with like a british spin i guess um and so so here as we're trying to create you know, white supremacy, they had to come up with both simultaneously an explanation for why all, not all white people were like supreme as they were saying, and um, the kind of the othering, right? The It's almost like the yet another sort of um, cultural, uh, it's like the stick and the carrot, you know, mm -hmm. getting people to buy into things um so it's like white trash are the bad white people who who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing yeah and you can see from the 1700s and 1800s here in the u.s like when people are writing about this they're talking about white trash as um being a lot of times they're saying it's almost like they're black people or it's almost like they're indigenous people and they're using a lot of the same words that they would use to talk about those groups of people and to denigrate those groups of people like um savage or brute uh or barbaric things like that but it's really important to note that they always said it's like we're like black people or we're like indigenous people so I want to make that clear because sometimes they're like, see, they hated everyone equally. And it's like, no, because they were still putting uh, black folks and indigenous folks kind of at the quote bottom of their hierarchy and right. saying we were acting like them. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so on one hand, that works to, like I said, explain why not all white people are the supreme beings that they're saying, but also it, it works to get people to do what my mom did to us. Right. Which is like, you don't want to be like them, right? You don't want to be seen like this. So here are the things that you need to do that are wrapped up in being a good, hardworking, thin person who talks like a middle American with quote, no accent or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, like it get you know, it gets us to buy into it. Um, got buy into basically racial capitalism. Yeah. And so then Appalachia starts to become like the white trash space. 
It's constructed in history as not only an all-white space, even though it's not. We know it's not. Um, something like 20% of Appalachia, uh, Appalachians are people of color. Um, and our fastest growing population right now is uh, Latinx people. But it's constructed as an all-white space. But it's not just constructed as an all-white space. It's constructed as an all-white trash space. Mm -hmm. Right. So like this became the space where the white trash people are. And there's some other spaces too. Ozarks are like that. And we get, they kind of get lumped in with Appalachia quite a bit. Um, But so then it became like these people in this space, like all of these white trash people are bad. Like they're all doing this wrong. Um, And another purpose that this serves is to take the, blame off of like social structures right and and redirect it to individual people so it's like you know there's been so much uh extraction corporate extraction and government extraction in Appalachia that creates a lot of the poverty that we see and um different things like that um I think Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls these kinds of things organized abandonment like man pur- that's good <laughs> like purposeful abandonment right But if you just portray this space as an all white trash space and it's not about anything that corporations or the government did to us, it's like we did this to ourselves because we're all bad. Yeah, it's like the um, what that brought to mind immediately for me is so many of the um, kind of more to the right or conservative Republican talking points surround personal responsibility. And that's, that's kind of, um, I, that's the connection I immediately made when, when you were saying that. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, nope, nothing to see here in terms of like, you know, corporate um, <laughs> exploitation or anything like that. It's just them. They're, they're bad because they didn't take personal responsibility for their own lives or whatever. Um, yeah. So when you look at kind of the history of how people have written about Appalachians. Um, What we see, again, this is for hundreds of years, is uh, people coming in from outside and almost treating us like, even I call these things that were like novels written in the early to mid 1800s, like our earliest forms of reality, like trash TV (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) But like they'd come in and and they would just write like almost gawk at us like, oh, my God, these people are so this. They're so that all these bad things. Right. Like they just get angry at the drop of a dime and shoot somebody. Oh, my goodness. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, I mean, there's something like I have it here. Um, um, yeah. Between 1874 and 1893. Um, both regional level and national newspapers reported on 41 family feuds that happened in Appalachia. 41. (laughs) And Hatfields and McCoys are in there. Right. And they're, and they're not doing it right. Like they're portraying it just as, Oh my gosh, these like wild and crazy people just shoot each other, each other over nothing. When in reality, like the Hatfields and McCoys thing was totally about, you know, money and land like almost every (laughs) thing is um and they tried to use legitimate means like through the courts and they didn't do anything so then they took matters into their own hands um but they you know they'd sensationalize it they'd change the whole story around they tried to do it after uh Hatfields and McCoys 
happened and became this kind of like national thing. They tried to do it with a feud that happened closer to where I live um, in Tucker County, West Virginia. There was two dudes who aren't even from Appalachia that were coming in trying to take up land for the uh, lumber industry. And one did happen to shoot the other one on a train. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They turned it into the, they tried to turn it into another like family feud type thing of these crazy wild Appalachians, but like neither one of them were from here. They were like rich dudes from, you know, downstate in Virginia and I think Pennsylvania. Wow. So, you know, so they're doing all this to sensationalize us. And again, it's not just talking about us being unintelligent or us being lazy or us being violent or whatever. Our bodies have also been made to be deviant. They would either be talking about us being like, too thin, almost emaciated due to malnutrition, but they're not talking about that piece. They're just like, oh, these people, the personal responsibility, right? Like they're not feeding themselves what they're supposed to be. Um, Or they would talk about us being like gluttonous, like too fat, um, lazy, right? All of these kinds of things going hand in hand with the way that they're constructing, you know, white trash as uh, violent and um, uncouth and drunk and, you know, all that, right? Our bodies have never been left out of that conversation, um, yeah. which is why I think it's so important to talk about because we just don't talk about that piece that much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple of things that I wanted to bring up um, that that you made me think of in that conversation is we hear um, – so much about food deserts in Appalachia. Um, and there is an element of, um, of that that goes into the food that we eat, the, the well, you know, and, and how that influences the way that we look. Um, and then also, you know, sometimes we have to buy cheap food because of inflation rates, because we're not making a living wage, because there are like it's it's difficult to feed a family on a single minimum wage income. So, um, you know, I was wondering how you, you know, looking at kind of this white trash space, um, how in modern day we look at fatness and thinness and poorness um, and how those converge to create this narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think it's super, super complex, right? You've got the things that you just mentioned going on here, food deserts, um, the fact that the cheaper food isn't as nutritionist, nutritionist, nutritious. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I'm <looking> for. <laughs> you can tell I just had finals. Um, <laughs> nutritionist, Jesus. Um, but, but also I want to point out, cause a lot of people bring that up, but, um, about, I think it's something like it, like the vast majority of what our bodies look like, it's just genetic. It wouldn't even matter if we had access to like the best, you know, highest quality, whatever food, like I'm probably still going to be a fat bitch, no no matter if I eat all organic everything. (laughs) Yeah. If I go down the street and get some fried chicken, like there's a very minimal amount of difference that um, those kinds of things make in what our bodies look like. Now, obviously there's a difference in our health. Um, But here, that's something I really didn't touch on yet. We, uh, we, make it seem as though body size and health are like intertwined and they're just not. Um, And I feel like 
uh, this is the thing that's probably going to get some folks finding my Instagram and being like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) So mad, but it's true. Like health and body size are not as connected as we think they are particularly when, and I know that people could sit here and be like, but there's all these studies that say that like fatness is linked with cancer and and high blood pressure and da, 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 da. Um, But the thing about those is when you, when researchers do them, a lot of the times they're not controlling for, and when I say controlling for, this is going to be, I'm not a statistical researcher at all. So this is my minimal amount of statistical understanding explanation. When you control for something in a research study, what it means is that you take that out, like it no longer impacts your findings as much as we can, right? Mm -hmm. You control for um, education level, let's say, then education level is not going to impact your like results that you're giving, okay? Those researchers doing those studies that say like, oh, there's this connection between say fatness and cancer, They're not controlling for things that happen like um, when a fat person goes to the doctor and they're like, I'm having this pain and their doctor's like, lose weight, right? And then so the person goes and they try to lose some weight and they maybe they do Um, because temporarily we usually can lose a little. um, It's just that our body then kicks in and is like, nope, sorry. Um, (laughs) So say they lose a little weight, then they go back to their doctor and they're, but they're like, I'm still, I, you know, I lost this weight, but I'm still having this pain. And the doctor's like, well, lose a little more. Right. So they go and they lose a little more weight and they're still having this pain and they go back and, or maybe they go see a new doctor because they're not getting the results that they need with this one. And then, you know, they get like an MRI done and it turns out that there's cancer and that's why they are having this pain. And now instead of being treated like a year and a half ago, when they first went with this pain, when it was maybe stage two, now it's stage four because you've waited a year and a half. So yeah, there's a link between fatness and um, like having worse outcome, health outcomes when if you have cancer. But that, a lot of that is probably doctors not treating fat people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so when you do studies, there, there are limited studies that have done this, but when you do studies and you control for things like um, bias in the healthcare industry um, and things like that, what you find is that there's really not a link between fatness and health, especially if fat people have not dieted. Yeah. Fat folks who have not dieted are like way healthier than fat folks who have. And there's a lot of research now that shows that like dieting itself is probably what causes most of the health outcomes that we say are attached to fatness. It's not fatness. It's actually like the dieting cycle. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that is, um, that's so important, I think, for folks to know, um, and to know that they um, can advocate for themselves. I know as, as a disabled person, um, I've been there in doctor's offices where they don't listen to you. Um, and it, it's, it, I am, I am not a fat person. And I, uh, I often find that I think doctors are, are dismissive generally of, of women in many ways. And then if you have these added elements of fatness, blackness, brownness, you know, you get, you get more and more, uh, of, of the kind of disadvantage, um, when it comes to health outcomes. And I'm really glad that I'm really glad that you talked about that. I I'd love to kind of 
circle all the way back to the beginning to your mom and how much she clearly loves you and and you have a good relationship with her now. Um, What would you tell your mom then? You know, if you could go back in time and give her some advice on raising a child who may not look exactly like the way that they had envisioned or the way that they think is right. Um, what advice would you give to her? Um, and then a follow-up to that is, is what would you tell yourself in those early days of, of being a fat bitch in the fattest state? I would say, you know... <laughs> I love this question. Um, I would tell my mom to just raise me instead of raising me to fit into the world that has fucked up standards, raise me to be like, fuck the standards. Because what I what really helped me stop starving myself and start eating like a proper amount of food for an adult, by the way, because I feel like we never talk about this. Um, during World War II, our government did a study to see like how existing on reduced amount of calories would impact people because, you know, soldiers were in this war and we had limited amount of supplies and they were trying to figure out like how little they could feed them and still have, get them to actually like do what they needed to do. 1400 calories a day was the starvation diet. Wow. Which 1400 calories a day right now, a lot of women would hear that and probably be like, whoa, that's a lot of food. Yeah. I mean, I, I am not afraid to say that I have tried diets here and there too. I mean, we all have, I think. And, um, you know, you type, you type into, to somewhere like, uh, like Noom (laughs) and, uh, they say that they're not a diet app, but you know, when I, when I tried Noom, um, when, like back when it was new, uh, they said that 1300 calories was what I needed in a day. Um, and, uh, Luckily, I kind of I, I ended up knowing that, that was not not an appropriate amount of food. But I do think that unless you're familiar with those kinds of um, those kinds of statistics, then you'll be like, all right, I'll do that. And I'll work out for two hours a day. Right. Like that's the amount of food that a toddler needs, not a grown human. <laughs> like it's absurd. But anyway, um, when I was, what really made me, other than Christy Harrison's fantastic book, Anti-Diet, which is where a lot of that information came from, highly recommend. Um, Other than that book, what really helped me was uh, in my scholarly life, like I was starting to really dig into Appalachian scholarship. It's not something that I did all the way through school. It's something that I started to do after I finished. So I was kind of, I'm like, I'm giving myself my own app studies degree (laughs) while I work on this research. (laughs) Um, And when I started to dig into it, that's where I started to see these connections. Like I already knew, you know, or I started reading things that were people were saying about, you know, how their parents started or taught them to um, minimize their accents and talk a certain way so that people would think you're intelligent and, you know, started to see these stories. I'm like, okay, not alone there. Right. And then I started to, you know, read kind of into the histories of like 
constructing white trash. Nancy Eisenberg has a fantastic book called White Trash that's on that. And I'm seeing these body connections, right? And I'm like, holy shit, like the whole time, like the root of this is the same, kind of what I was saying. And it really made me, one, want to embrace the fullness of my Appalachian-ness, right? And stop as as much as I can. So much of this is kind of like programmed in me, but like stop changing my accent and things like that. But also I was like, I need to just let my body be. Like, I don't care about fitting these standards of, you know, middle-class respectable whiteness or whatever. Anyway, I never have. I just never saw the connection to like dieting and how I was trying to will my body to be something that it's not. Um, And so I think like what power it would be if all, you know, Appalachian parents were just like, fuck this shit. I'm not going to do this to my kids. I'm going to raise them to just like fully embrace themselves and be super intelligent kids who, you know, say fire instead of fire. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, are fat. And not that all of us in Appalachia, uh, Appalachia are fat, but, you know, let their bodies be whatever they are. Like, I just think there would be such power in it. And I think that, I'm not usually like the super like hopeful person. So this feels weird to even say out loud, but I feel like we're on a way there. I feel like we are in a place right now where we can change the narrative of Appalachia. Um, And I think that thinking about how we talk about our bodies and like how we teach our young people to like treat their bodies is a huge piece of that. And to your second question, I would tell myself the same thing. Like, little girl, you are a bad, fat bitch. (laughs) And the bitch part is important to me, too, because, like, in the same way that they, you know, taught me to make my body as small as I can make it, they also taught me to, like, minimize my sass, right? Because, Because white trash women are uncouth, you know? And respectable women are, like, quiet and whatever. All these things that I'll never be. (laughs) (laughs) So... I think like most of my childhood was a lot and, and, you know, a chunk of my adulthood was a lot of like trying to um, put myself into like a respectable box that I'm just not going to be in ever. And it's much more fun to just be like, fuck that box and be a fat bitch. (laughs) So that's what I would tell my young self too. I love that. I love that so much. Um, And I, I think that like, I wish that I had heard that too. You know, even, even if I wasn't the same, I wasn't under the same circumstances. I think particularly, I'm really glad that you said that the bitch part is important because I think it is too. Um, I was loud. Uh, I was opinionated and that was something that I definitely got, uh, I got a lot of side eye for. Um, and so I, I certainly, I love the idea of encouraging our young people to fully be themselves and fully embrace our culture and our heritage and who we are. Um, That's, oh, go ahead. I think like every, every young woman and young girl ever probably got some of the sass talked, you know, taught out of them. Right. Because we're, you know, young ladies aren't supposed to be those things, but I think it's even more, 
present in the lives of like young ladies in Appalachia whose parents are trying to set them up, you know, for success in life because, because of those white trash tropes, right? White trash women have always been um, constructed as being like uncouth and, and like you said, loud and opinionated and all those things are, are said to be bad, which is weird to me. Um, (laughs) But so it's even more for us because it's like, you know, our parents trying to be like, no, you can't be like one of those, you know, like white trash girls, right? Because then people are going to assume all these other things about you. Yeah. And it's like, no, we just are those white trash girls and we need to fucking embrace <laughs> that shit. <laughs> I love that. I could not love that more. Um, I So the, I've reached the end of my questions and I want to give you just kind of the an opportunity if we've missed anything in the conversation that you want to hit on, on, on history, on um kind of what what we have going on today in in this i want to give you that that space to just kind of round out the conversation in a way that that makes sense to you and that that we can leave folks with this like final final thoughts from you one i want to make really clear that it's not that we weren't seen as white or didn't have uh some of the privileges of whiteness um and particularly like things like voting that were attached like specifically to whiteness for a very long time, stuff like that. Um, I think Anthony Harkins, who wrote this book on kind of the history of the development of the hillbilly as a trope, um, he says that, he says it so perfectly. He says, it was almost like we were in whiteness, but not of it. Yeah, wow. Right? Yeah. And I want to bring that home because, or I wanted to to drive that point home because like, I think so often when we start to dive into the history of this and we look at like, oh, how, you know, folks in positions of power here, cough, Thomas Jefferson, cough, um, (laughs) and others would write these, you know, horrible things about poor white folks and call us savage and and, um, barbarians and all of these things. Um, I think some of the tendency can be like, oh, see, we had the same experience as Black people, or oh, see, we had the same experience as Indigenous people here. It's like, no, no, it was different. It was also bad in a lot of ways, but it was also different Mm -hmm. because of the whiteness piece. Like, it's not the same thing. Um, And I think that's a really important just thing that needs to be said out loud, because I think sometimes try to be like, look, we're all equally messed up or something like that. We're all equally oppressed. It's like, no, no, (laughs) it's different. Yeah. Um, So that's one thing. And then the other one is, and I always try to to talk about this with my students too, um, because I think this is really important. The, The point, one of the main purposes that that white trash trope serves other than, you know, coercing us into capitalism and to racial capitalism is it lets like middle-class um, mostly like city or suburban white folks be like, those are the bad people, mm-hmm. the good ones without having to do anything <laughs> to earn that good title. Like they just get to be um, yeah. and put everything bad off on us. Like the first, the first, Appalachian character in any kind of like printed fiction um, was, I'm going to find his name. Okay. I might, 
be pronouncing this totally wrong because I've never heard a name spelled S-U-T before, but Soot Living Good. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sorry, Soot Loving Good. Um, and it's from a short story written by this guy, George Washington Harris. And it's in 1867 is when it was printed the first time. The first Appalachian character in printed fiction was this like racist, you know, really like obnoxious um, character. And the racism piece there is really important too, because what it does, and of course, like racism is embedded in the white trash trope, right? Yeah. But what it does is it lets white folks everywhere else be like, I'm not racist because I'm not white trash. Right. Right. And they're completely 100% benefiting from white supremacy, doing absolutely nothing to stop it. Probably yes. no people of color. And if they do, they're like their servants or, you know, they work in service to them in some capacity um, or their work acquaintances that they think they're way closer to than they actually are. But no, they get to be the not racist ones because we are the racist ones. Like we get constructed as the racist ones. And I'm not trying to make a case for Appalachian exceptionalism. We have our issues. We have our racists. <laughs> we have, you know, all the same issues that exist everywhere else. But that's just the thing. We have all the same issues that exist everywhere else. We don't have any special issues <laughs> that only exist here. Yeah, no, I I, I love that. Um, and it reminds me, you know, it, it. I hate that it comes back to this, but this is how Hillbilly Elegy was so successful because it allowed the rest of the country to live in their comfortable narrative about who the people that elected Trump were. And it was the trashy white people in Appalachia. Um, And, uh, you know, we're going to link all of the books that you've mentioned in the show notes. Um, I'm going to get you to send me a list. Uh, And one of the ones that I that that immediately brings to mind for me is um, another sociologist who I love. um, Arlie Russell Hochschild wrote A Stranger in Their Own Land. And I think that that is um, just a much more exceptional piece of uh, of of research and you know, a, a work that can can more fairly describe the region than um, than Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, but uh, that's my plug. I love that book. Uh, but yeah, I- literally any other book ever. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone, <laughs> any other one. But and that's the thing. And maybe this is like, because as you said, like, where do you want us to end? Uh, like, where do you want to take it to the end? I think like the takeaway here and I've been thinking about this a lot the past few days as I transition from like teaching brain and finals grading brain into the writing that I'm going to do this summer on my book and the research cultural narratives and I'm not talking about like individual or like small level society like you know your close uh community narratives I'm talking about like the cultural narratives present in our society are so powerful And the ones that have existed for hundreds of years, you know, that portray Appalachia as the white trash space, like whenever anyone writes something that fits into that, like J.D. Vance, it's going to go wild, right? Because it fits the narrative that people already know. People just like internalize it without questioning it. Even my fellow sociologists, you know, who are not Appalachian, um, who know, like, who would criticize if anybody talked about like, uh, a group of 
people of color that way, like the sociologist that I'm thinking about, um, would be like, that's a culture of poverty argument. We know why that's bad, <laughs> you know? Right. And then, but I had people say to me like, oh, have you read this book? And I'm like, how, how would you? No, there are a bunch of people who totally accept culture of poverty arguments for people of color too. I'm not saying that, but like, I'm talking about specific race sociologists. <laughs> Right. didn't like pick up on it in this book because it's so embedded in our cultural narratives. And I think that's why it's so important. Like the things that y'all do, the things that I'm trying to do with this book that I'm writing to change the narrative. That is majorly powerful because changing the narrative changes what people can just kind of blindly accept. Right. Changing the narrative means People aren't going to, you know, or people are going to have to stop and question like certain tropes that right now we just accept as true. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah, of course. I I love that. And um, I think that's a great place to to leave it because I mean, there's so much we could talk about. Um, There's so many tangents that I want to go on, Um, but I really, I appreciate your time. And uh, I think that, that um, this is really important to get out there and to talk about. And I just really appreciate you coming on this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to talk about being awesome and fat and awesome. Well, that was our interview. Check out the links. We've got a bunch of links in the show notes to some of the books that she mentioned, as well as her bio and more info about her. Callie, great job. Uh, this was your, your first solo interview with, with the pod, and I think you did a bang-up job. In fact, I don't, think, I don't think I need to be at any of them anymore. <laughs> Not that I ever did in the beginning, but... No, I uh, it was super fun, um, but I definitely like it when you're there. Appreciate that. That's that's all the validation I needed and was and was fishing for. So <laughs> <laughs> Just fishing for compliments. That's me. It's the only fishing I do. Oy vey. Well, <laughs> cool. Well, let's move on. We've got our last segment, which I, I'm I'm really getting into. I'm really liking it. It's called Under the Radar in Appalachia. This is the third time we've done it. Out of many, and I'm very excited. So you brought this up, Kelly, and I thought this is interesting. This is, uh, you know, sometimes these are politically adjacent, sometimes they're not. This one very much so, because we're in the heat of primaries. And we've got, this is, uh, we're down in Alabama for this one. Great state of Alabama, where a mysterious $1.7 million just happened to float its way into the Alabama governor's race. And in fact, it floated into Kay Ivey's campaign coffers. She's the sitting governor of Alabama, who's in a, I think, a somewhat competitive primary right now. Yeah. So why don't you, uh, why don't you walk us through this? Because this is, this is abnormal. It's a lot of money. It's abnormal how this happened. Yeah. As soon as I saw this story, I was like, we have to talk about this. Um, because it is absolutely fascinating. And now that we're talking about um, kind of the, the, the under the hood of campaigns, I think that we can kind of get into the wonkiness of this stuff and into campaign finance, which is just the best. So on March 31st, 
a mysterious kind of unknown entity called the Get Families Back to Work Incorporated uh, group uh, gave $750,000 to Kay Ivey's campaign through a uh, funneling through a PAC. Uh, at the time that this was given, it was the single largest donation anyone had made to a candidate for statewide office. And a week later, the same group made another 750K donation and then a 250K donation. So, so much money, so much money to a candidate that was kind of floundering, really. Um, I think a lot of people weren't taking her seriously. And this like completely changed the game for Kay. Um, so, $1.7 million through a dark money group that shares an address. Here is a really important part. Shares an address with the National Republican Governors Association. So that's fishy. Um, and what it seems to be, we have no idea who's behind the donation. That's that's just needs to be said at the outset. But we can see that where like kind of where the things are registered and kind of infer from that. So it seems to be this scheme to get around the state campaign finance laws, um, which, again, it's, it's the largest donation in state history. But neither the Republican Governors Association nor the campaign nor this mysterious organization without a website will comment on it. So reporters are very interested. We are very interested. Um, things are very in flux and, and we can't get a comment from anyone on it. Um, the Main thing that we think is holding people up from commenting on it is this appears to be a really poorly done workaround of Alabama election law. Um, so it, it appears to violate election law in the way that they had done it through this mysterious group. Um, it's it's not in line with uh, with the state laws, but those state campaign finance laws were passed by the Republican legislature. So it's Republican it's Republican here. Um, and it's it's really interesting uh, what what the politics play is. Um, so the Get Families Back to Work uh, group is a dark money organization, like we said. So we don't know where that money is actually originating from. We know where it's coming from once it reaches the Get Families Back to Work uh, incorporated or group or whatever. Um, we know where it's coming from them. We don't know who gave them that money. Um, but they're based in Virginia. And again, they have the same, the same address as uh, the RGA, which is, uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty sus. Yeah. A little fishy there. Republican governor's association. Clearly they're worried that KIV can't pull this off. Which she's ahead pretty substantially in all the polls, but they're worried that she's going to be forced into a runoff. And I guess they really don't want any of these other people to be governor, I suppose. Linda Blanchard and Tim James are the two other candidates. I, I don't know truly much of anything about either of them. I know that Linda Blanchard was the U.S. ambassador to Slovenia under Trump for like a hot second and then jumped into the Senate race but to me, it is very interesting that this group that is clearly connected to the Republican Governors Association has funneled $1.7 million into this primary for Kay Ivey, supposedly to try to help her uh, avoid a runoff against these people. Clearly, they're, they do not want uh, Linda Blanchard or this Tim James guy to even come close to the governor's office, and I am not sure why. So... It'll be interesting to see 
if anything else unravels from this because they're they're clearly they're not worried about losing the general at all yeah no i don't think so at all it's just the 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 really strange thing about it is that it came in three chunks number one that's pretty strange um that it came from a group that has seemingly not donated to anyone else and was just just formed um has no website has no messaging we don't know where they stand what does get families back to work that could be anybody um and also there aren't that many um there aren't that many people who are that heavily invested in Alabama politics to drop $1.7 million on a race in Alabama that seems to be like pretty locked up. So there's a lot that it, it, there's a lot that brings about the suspicion in a I think a real way. Like I think that we have a right to be pretty scared of this kind of political maneuver because it could happen in any place. And it just so happens that it's happening in Alabama. We should be aware that this is the kind of politics that can be played, especially in states that don't have um, donation limits in state races. Uh, that's a real problem. Federally, folks should know federally, you can't give more than $5,000 as a pack to a federal race. So the maximum amount that the Humane Society can give to um, somebody who is running, like Jasmine Beach Ferrari, in the North Carolina 11th is $5,000. Um, but in, in state elections, there are different, um, there are different levels at which you can operate on. Texas has no laws that, that, that give that cap contributions. Literally a billionaire could come in, write a $5 million check, drop that for Abbott, which has happened. Um, and he can use that money. And so that's something, um, in Alabama, I need to actually get you know, what the, what the campaign cap is there. Um, and we can talk about that, but there's a lot of states that don't have the same kind of ethics standards as far as campaign contributions go. Yeah, it's really, it's really sad, honestly. And this is like, this is a problem everywhere, but especially in places like this, where it's like the wild west of campaign finance laws. And so a place like Alabama looks like they're, they're pretty lax and you can throw a bunch of money around. And so in, and in Alabama, packs there's unlimited unlimited spending on packs so yeah, that's right so like single donors can have probably have a limit but yeah packs unlimited it's wild that is wild which is how how they did this but it's it's really concerning um i think that we'll want to check back in on this and we'll definitely want to see if there's any updates if anybody has any inside information Tell Hit us, us up. Let us know. Please leak it. Leak it to us. Well, thank you all so much. That, that'll do it for Under the Radar in Appalachia. That is very under the radar, and it's a huge problem. That'll wrap for this week. We uh, appreciate you all listening. Again, check us out, patreon.com. Check us out, all of our social media, all that jazz. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with more and uh, more election coverage, more exciting stuff. And we'll look forward to talking to you then.